Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, episode number 85. With Dr. Sarah Mackay, an Australian neuroscientist, speaker, author, media personality, and founder and director of Think Brain and the Neuroscience Academy suite of training programs, whose purpose is to explain the brain so you can apply neurobiology to your life and work, which is exactly what we're focused on with this podcast. My name is Andrea Samadhi, and if you're new here, I'm a former educator who created this podcast to bring the most current neuroscience research, along with high-performing experts who've risen to the top of their field with specific strategies or ideas that you can implement immediately to take your results to the next level. I encourage everyone who wants to learn more about the brain to go to Dr. Mackay's website, drsarahmackay.com, and that's Dr. Sarah, S-A-R-A-H-M-C-K-A-Y.com, and learn more about her books, online courses, workshops, writing, teaching, online training programs that she's created so you can easily access, understand, and implement evidence-based neuroscience strategies into your everyday life and work. But here's where things get exciting. You've got to watch Dr. Sarah Mackay's TEDx on indulging your neurobiology. It's got 27,000 views. I've seen Sarah speak many times over the years and most recently just last week as she was a speaker in Helen Matheny's preschool neuroscience summit where I also spoke. So I watched her session to get some ideas of how I could connect her knowledge to the topics of the podcast to help those listening understand her knowledge and insight as she is an expert on explaining the brain and then learning how to apply these strategies to your life. You'll learn more about Dr. Mackay's TEDx, her most recent book, The Women's Brain Book, and some important brain strategies that I've picked out that I think we should all be aware of. Stay tuned, here's Dr. Mackay. Welcome, Sarah. It's wonderful to have you here and so exciting since I've been following your work since you spoke on John Astroff's Brainathon back in 2017. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Rima. I was just kind of raising my eyebrows thinking, gosh, that was a while ago, back in the days when international travel was kind of what we did. (laughs) So thanks for the invitation. Oh, absolutely. So uh, you're all the way from Australia. So it's actually... Wednesday, my day, and the next day, Thursday, your day, bright and early. Thanks so much for doing this at 7 a.m. Australia time the next day. Ah, uh, no, we get up, we get up early and get outside and enjoy life here in Sydney. So it's not a problem. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, before we're going to get to the questions, I've just got to tell you that the first minute of your TEDx talk, I almost dropped my pen as I was taking notes. And it was, you're talking about the importance of sleep and taking naps and brain health in your TEDx. And the past three episodes that I've done were all focused on getting a spec image brain scan if you want to optimize your results by looking at the brain. And just last episode, I shared my results. And the doctor, Creato, out of Amon's Chicago offices said, Andrea, to me, it looks like you've got a sleep-deprived brain. And uh, I show a little bit about some of the cognitive weakness that I might be showing due to not enough sleep. And we Mm -hmm. can hear strategies all day about, you know, sleep, exercise, diet. 
But unless we actually implement them, we're not going to have the opportunity mm. that comes along with enhancing the brain. So I just want to know from you, an expert on explaining the brain, why is sleep so important to our neurobiology? <laughs> I would love to know what my brain looks like because I like I love sleep. I'm very good. I am very good at it. Um, if I you know take 20 minutes to, to fall asleep at night, I'm panicking that I'm going to get sleep deprived. So I'm a, I'm a good sleeper. Uh, I think it's the foundation of all biological health, psychological health, social health. It's completely underestimated. And I guess, you know, it's we, we kind of revere those people who require less sleep every night because, gosh, aren't they seen as so productive, all of that work that they must be doing, all the rest of us kind of while our ways, you know, time away when we're in bed asleep. We only need to miss one good night's sleep to know how that disruption makes us feel the next day. You know, we feel tired, we feel cranky, we feel like falling asleep. We don't feel our best selves. And I think we only need to reflect on that quite carefully to understand that, that, that fundamental importance for that. I think we've, t you know, us humans have revered ourselves so highly, we've completely forgotten that we are simply part of mother nature too. We are an organism like any other organism that's evolved on this planet. And from single celled organisms up to us, we evolved on this planet that spins on its axis as it goes around the sun. And every cell in our body has evolved as part, you know, to kind of respect and to be in tune with that light dark cycle. So there is kind of a biological mandate for us to sleep when it's dark. It's, it's if, you know, if we sort of start thinking about that, that kind of bi those biological principles, we think about how terrible if we, we feel if we become sleep deprived. I mean, for me, that personally is enough, but lots of people need, need more data. So what we can do is we can go away and we can look at sort of large population-based studies that may have been done of groups of people who perhaps have a long history of poor sleep. Perhaps they are shift workers, so they never get regular sleep every night when it's dark. Perhaps for, for whatever reason, they've had disrupted sleep for many, many years. And it's pretty clear when we start looking at their biological health markers that they are simply not as healthy as people who get good night's sleep. So we start to see an increase in metabolic disorders. So all of your issues around um, that, that are related to things like obesity and heart disease and, um, you know, diabetes, those types of metabolic disorders, absolutely on the rise. And particularly we see that in shift workers, not because they're eating food at different times of the day because they are not sleeping when it's dark and waking when it's light. We see rises in mental health problems. That's, that's pretty apparent. And plenty of new parents will be able to attest to that, their, their mood, mood disorders and problems with emotional regulation that start emerging almost what would we expect once people's sleep becomes disrupted when they're raising little babies and young children who disrupt the sleep every night. Um, then we can look at the diseases of ageing, and in particular there are um, correlations between poor night's sleep and the, and the diseases of brain ageing, such as Alzheimer's disease, which is one of the dementias. We can even take it one step further and look at large, large population studies, and we can see differences there in rates of mortality. So you are more likely to die younger if you are not getting sufficient sleep. So we could have our personal experience, we can look at kind of evolutionary biology, and we can look at population health. It's pretty clear. Um, what disrupted sleep does to us. We are now, I guess, 
um, from a neuroscience perspective, really in the last decade, gaining a deeper understanding of what happens when we fall asleep. We still don't understand every aspect of that, but but there's a there's a there's a couple of um, ideas that are that are emerging from the careful studies that have been done. One that the brain almost uses sleep as a way of cleaning itself. It's almost like a kind of the the the, the um, the city council coming in and clearing the city out overnight when everyone's asleep and emptying the bins and sweeping the streets. Our brain sort of functions in a similar way when we are asleep. Everything, all the, the kind of the detritus of the day is flushed out. And we also understand how fundamentally important it is for um, embedding new memories, for processing a lot of the cognitive activity of the day and for memory formation. So for me, the case is pretty clear cut. <laughs> The problem for many people is that they struggle with getting that good night's sleep. So again, as you mentioned, we can have all of the knowledge we like, understand the neurobiological theory, actually deploying that information is the, is the problem for many people. That's interesting because I know this and I've been working on sleep for, I'd say a couple of years, I've been tracking, measuring, but you're a mom and I'm a mom. I've got two, two girls and they're not that young anymore. It's not like I have to get up in the middle of the night, but you know, I'm how old like, are they? So 10 and eight. But okay. So similar. My, I've got two boys who are, who are 10 and 12. Yeah. So they still wake up in the middle of the night when you're on, like I'm day two of like, let's work on my sleep, get an extra half hour and it's midnight and someone's like, mommy, I've got a tummy ache. And this is just mm. life. It's like, I feel like as yeah. a mom, I sleep with one eye open almost just because you've got other things on your mind, always making sure the kids are safe. And so mm. there's that aspect to it. So, you know, it's yeah, just abs abs absolutely. And that's, that's, I mean, people talk about that all the time and it's a pretty common experience of parenting. There's a number of ways around and I also have trained my dog to go to my husband's side of the bed, my boys. Um, <laughs> but we, one of my kids, um, you know, has gone through a phase of not, the younger one of not sleeping very well and he gets a bit anxious mm -hmm. and he was waking us up night after night after night for a long time. And in the end, we were like, mate, if you're not feeling happy, if you're feeling scared, we just had to put a mattress on the floor next to our bed. So when he was unhappy, he just came in, jumped into the bed on the on the ground next to us. Went to he was happy and he felt safe, so he went back to sleep and he didn't wake us up. So we've we've kind of implemented a few things like that That's to ensure that our sleep isn't disrupted when his sleep is and he feels safe because that's very important as well. None of us are going to sleep if he's not if he's not happy and safe. But particularly when children are really little, and I think. If we, if we reflect on what happens when we fall asleep, and people may or may not be familiar with the different stages of the sleep cycle, but our brain kind of cycles in and out of different levels of sleep, and people may have heard of REM sleep when you're, you've got rapid eye movement, and that's when we have a particular kind of dreaming. We typically, when we fall asleep in the first few hours of sleep, we fall into what's known as deep sleep, so we go down through the different sort of stages of sleep, and we spend the first few hours of our night's sleep in deep restorative sleep. So that is the sleep that, you know, we kind of need the most. Our body and brain switches it on straight away. We fall into deep sleep. And that is when a lot of the, the rest and repair is done. In the second half of the night, we cycle in and out of kind of less deep stages of sleep. And perhaps we might even have a few little moments of wakefulness that you may or may not remember. and You fall back asleep again. The absolute key to a lot of, the um, sleep that we require is those first few hours. 
And that's why often you might hear, oh, well, it's the hours before midnight that matter. It's really the first few hours that really matter. And new parents, and I completely understand this. I was one once, although I was a new parent with the knowledge and the desire to get as much sleep as I could and the ability to put strategies in place. New parents often just don't go to bed early enough. So they're not getting, they put baby down, maybe eight o'clock and baby's probably going to wake for the first feed at maybe midnight or one. So what do the parents do? Put baby down hang out, do whatever they want to do, have a bit of alone time, watch TV, head off to bed at 11.30, fall asleep, and then the baby wakes them an hour later and they are being woken up out of that deep restorative sleep. It's hard to wake up out of that. You don't feel good. That's disrupted. You feed the baby, you put the baby back to sleep. It's going to be very hard to fall back into that again. Mm -hmm. If children are falling asleep at 8 o'clock, maybe new parents, just maybe for a few months, need to go to bed at nine, then they're going to get from nine till midnight. They're going to get those three or four hours of really deep restorative sleep before they get woken up the first time. They've smashed out the deep sleep. They're going to be getting woken up in the second half of the, this night when it's a bit easier to wake up. It doesn't matter if you get woken up at 4 a.m. I mean, you would have had kids coming in. If they wake you up at 4.30, it's a bit frustrating. You don't want that but it's a whole lot easier to wake up and it doesn't have the same impact as if you were woken up at 11.30, the beginning of your night. So that's always my advice. It sounds like something your Nana would say, that's what my mum said to me, to be honest, just go to bed a little bit earlier and try and get your deep restorative sleep in the part of the night when you're not going to get it disrupted. Well, that's very smart. That's, I love that because I didn't know that either. I didn't know. Now I'm learning so much as I interview each person. Here, I know more about the sleep cycles, but that's powerful. Yeah. Sarah, I just love your work, but I also love the story behind you that you can see on your website when you go to your about section. And I really relate to it partly because I would love to live on the beaches of Australia, but I, also, <laughs> I, I just chose to live in Arizona where there's no water. But so. Anyway, uh, also a book changed the direction of my life. So how exactly did Oliver Sacks' book impact you so profoundly that you became fascinated with the human brain? I actually had to download it to see wh what's in that book that, that made you study and learn how to explain the brain. Did you read it? What did you think? I started reading it. I was like, what, what, and I didn't finish it, no, but I was reading it to yeah. see what it, what it could be, just the very beginning yeah. part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm actually a New Zealander. I didn't grow up in Australia. I live here now, but um, I grew I was born and bred in New Zealand. So um, waving the banner for Kiwi women everywhere. We like to think that we're having a good moment in history. Um, so I was, I'm utterly fortunate to have been born in that in, in, New, in New Zealand. Best country in the world. And we're very pragmatic and down to earth people and we just kind of get things done and, and I, I think my upbringing is a huge part of who I am as an adult. So I was attending my first year of university in New Zealand and I was in a psychology lecture and they said go away and read this book, get hold of this book and this was sort of the early 90s. At that point in time neuroscience wasn't a discipline in a lot of universities. Mm -hmm. um, they were really the universities and particularly Otago University in New Zealand which is not where I was studying had pulled together um, the, you know, the, the kind of the brain, the neurodiscipline from pharmacology, psychology, physiology, psychiatry, etc., and pulled that together into this brand new degree discipline. So I started reading this book about, uh, written by Oliver Sacks, who was a neurologist. He's 
passed away in about 2015. Um, and he wrote, he's, a, he's an amazing writer and was writing these case studies, beautiful storytelling skills about the things, when, when things go wrong with the brain, what are the kind of the strange and wondrous behaviours and thoughts and feelings that emerge from that? And I was captivated by, um, by these stories that Oliver Sacks told. And really, there's been generations of neuroscientists that could tell the story. Um, and I just read that and I thought, I just thought, what on earth could be more interesting? This was just the most fascinating thing I'd ever read in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I changed universities. I moved from my hometown of Christchurch to Dunedin University, Otago, sorry, Dunedin, where Otago University is, to switch my focus to doing a degree in neuroscience. Wow. Um, and it was really, I mean, my path has deviated from that since because it's such a, a broad, deep and fascinating discipline. It's incredibly complicated. We're kind of just sort of scratching the surface of of what we know and understand about the brain. But for me, it set me on this sort of fabulous path um, through my career. Uh, and, and I'm still utterly intrigued and fascinated every day by what we are learning and finding out, what we already know, how the science is changing, how we're having to rejig our ideas, continually challenge ourselves within this sort of world of neuroscience. So, um, you know, it was, it was a really life-changing moment reading that book. Books can change lives. Um, I grew up, my, I, grew, I, had a, I had amazing, wonderful, loving family growing up, but my parents both left school when they were 15. Mm. So I didn't know anyone who had ever gone to university before, except my family GP. So I really went off to university, not really kind of knowing what career was in front of me, what um, a, a science career would be. I'd never met a scientist, didn't really know what they were. Um, so I am just so grateful that someone once wrote a book that that changed, you know, shaped and changed and changed my life. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's an amazing story. I wondered where it came from because once you've got the neuroscience bug, you can't put it down. And mm-hmm. so that's what happened to me this weekend. I was reading your book, the Women's Brain book, the neuroscience of health, hormones, and happiness, because I want to learn how to improve myself and help others do the same. And it caught my eye in chapter two on childhood, the question Mm. of are resilient children born or made? And especially Mm. because resiliency was actually one of the line items they measure on Dr. Amon's brain scans. And I think goodness scored high on resiliency, but I know that so many people want to know how we can use this skill for ourselves and for our children. And you say that there's a secret secret to raising adaptable, resilient children who don't get stressed when, and you say they're like dandelions where they'll grow and thrive anywhere. Can you explain what do you think? Can we, are, are resilient children born or can we shape them this way? Yeah, that's a really interesting question to ask because resilience and it's 2020 so you know being 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 resilient is we've all been in resilience training the globe has been in resilience training this year this idea that um and 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 i suppose it's become a bit of a trendy word certainly here in australia gets thrown around a lot gets used in the schools all the time um my children's one of my, my children's primary school motto um has respect responsibility and resilience so it's really in there this idea that um you know, you bend, don't break, and you kind of learn how to manage with whatever's kind of happening around you at the time. And it's a skill that can be taught, absolutely. 
but it also it appears that some people are more biologically resilient than others so whenever i talk about brain health i always say let's just think about the brain in the middle and what are the various inputs and outputs that are influencing our brains and and you know that that kind of health aspect of that and i talk about bottom-up biology so we've got you know our, our hormones and our genes and our um, the food we eat and how much sleep we get, our gut health, you know, the, all, all of that bottom-up influence. We've got the outside-in influence of, you know, respecting that light-dark cycle, being part of nature, um, the social connections we have, the family support we have, previous life experiences, and then top-down, which are, you know, our thoughts and our feelings and our attitudes and our expectations and all of these kind of input into what, we, what may be perhaps what we could say would be a resilient brain. Now, I suppose when we talk about brain resilience, we can talk about, bio, and I'm not sure what the, um, these SPECT scans measure, whether we're talking about sort of biological resilience to aging or whether we're talking about emotional resilience. So there's different way, different kind of threads we can pull there, what, what, what kind of we're looking at. They were- Beg your pardon? The emotional resilience. Emotional resilience. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's, that's really useful that is, one, a skill we can develop and we can teach, and particularly young children, we can take a look at, um, you know, from the bottom up, are they getting enough sleep and food and exercise? Are we, are they, are they being raised in a loving family where they've got, you know, people who model, you know, how to manage emotions well, who calm them down when they're hyped up, who provide, you know, opportunities for education and exploration and play, um, and, you know, again, teaching them emotional regulation skills. So, it does appear, though, if we look at, again, we can look at ourselves and we can, you know, look at our, reflect on our own lives and we can look at large populations of people. And if we look at very large populations of people, and there's a wonderful study that's come out of Otago University where I went to, where I did my undergrad university, um, that's followed just over a 1,000 people from when they were born in the mid-70s all the way through to now they're in their mid-40s. Same age as me, actually, born just a few hours down the road from where I am. and if we look at those people, we see that about one in five of those people appear to be pretty resilient. It doesn't really kind of matter what life is thrown at them. It didn't matter really what kind of family they were brought up in. It didn't matter what kind of education they had, experiences they've had. They remain pretty biologically healthy and they also remain reasonably free of any, any diagnosable mental health disorder. Four out of five people you know, aren't necessarily as resilient. So we can go in and, and studies that have been done looking at every aspect of the biology of these people do tend to show that there are also a few maybe fundamental biological differences in, in these people. And this is where this idea that comes out of um, some work from, let me just refresh my mind, um, Thomas Boyce, who has written about this and really was a proponent of this idea and he used the language from um, Scandinavian um, parents that some people are orchids and some people are dandelions. And if you think about a dandelion, it kind of grows in it, could grow in the, a crack in the pavement, mm -hmm. um, kind of no matter what, it's just sort of there being this little yellow flower. Um, it doesn't, you know, it's life, can, anything can happen, a truck can run over it and it'll, it'll be okay. On the other hand, we have people who are orchids who, when they're given precisely the right environment, and I grow orchids, I happen to live in a house that 
by chance happens to be precisely the right environment. Um, wow. It's a beautiful east-facing kind of living area um, that gets all the morning sun. Precisely the right environment for orchids to, to flourish and thrive and, and grow. But given not the precise environment, orchids just fail to thrive. And so perhaps there is a, a story we can tell there about people who, no matter what life throws at them, they're just fine. They're the kind of people that kind of turn around and say to everyone else, what are you worried about 2020's pandemic for? It's fine. Stop stressing. And then we have orchids who need just the right environment. If they do, well, they're going to be more beautiful in that dandelion and they are going to flourish and thrive and take on the world, but not given the right environment, wilt and suffer and struggle to survive. And there does appear to be a little bit of a biological underpinning to some of these differences. But the hope, the hope that comes out of that is perhaps despite your biology, given the right environment, given the right family, given the right education, given the right world in which to be brought up in, doesn't matter if you haven't got the right biology, you can still flourish and thrive. So this is where this idea of these 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 orchids and dandelions comes from of course there's not a, a complete you can't look at someone's dna or do a brain scan and go well they're an orchid and they're a dandelion that mm. is impossible it is not about that it's really just about understanding there is an interplay between our genetics our dna and our environment this gene environment interaction we see this this is, is kind of where we're starting to move from instead of talking about is it nature or is it nurture no it's the, the two are intertwined and influence each other well, I'm never going to forget this because I always have an orchid on my desk and I never thought about that, the right environment. Mm -hmm. And it's always beautiful when I first put it on my desk and then a couple months later, there's the flowers gone. It's not the yeah, right Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you need to just like let them sort of go dormant for a while and then they, they come back. <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm waiting for it. I keep watering it going, oh, please come back. And then I go to the store and I get another one. And then that goes yeah, into yeah, another yeah. room and I'm trying. But the, the environment must not be right here. But yeah, I'll yeah. never forget orchids versus dandelions now. Thanks for that. Mm -hmm. Now, Sarah, since depression and anxiety at an all-time high these days with a rise in cases since we've been going through what we've been going through, I wonder if you can share what you know about this topic. Can depression be seen in the brain? What does it look like? And how does the depressed brain work? Is it different from an otherwise healthy mm. brain? Mm. Well, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways we can look at defining depression. We can look at the causes and we can look at, you know, how we can get our way out of it. And again, I kind of come back to taking a biopsychosocial approach. Let's look at the bottom up influences, the outside in influences and the top down influences. How do we kind of get to a depressed mood, which is really what, you know, depressed mood, lack of motivation that we see um, symptomatically in someone with depression. Now, I um, don't believe from what I understand about neurobiology, we need a brain scan to, to diagnose depression we need to look at how someone thinks and feels and behaves and they get diagnosed clinically based on on those symptoms but again you're not either depressed or not depressed there are what I call shades of blue and there may be you know just, just feeling a bit glum for a week or two and perhaps that's a reaction to the incredibly stressful world that many of us have, an uncertain world many of us have found ourselves in or perhaps you actually suffer from some very very deep-seated um, chronic depression which threatens your life and um, you know is proven to be reasonably treatment resistant so you're looking at a huge spectrum there um, of, of examples of the kinds of 
presentation that some someone could have. So it would be great if we could, you know, image someone's brain and say, oh, well, you're depressed and you're not. Um, well, I, I would prefer to ask someone um, or have them diagnosed formally as yes, they are or not. What are we going to, and then, you know, what are we going to do about that? And again, I take a, would take a bottom-up, outside and top-down approach to kind of ensuring kind of reconnection with healthy biology, reconnection with the outside world socially, um, find ways to buffer stress and manage your emotional response to that. Look at your social connections, look at your connection with nature. And again, what are some of these, um, you know, top-down thoughts and feelings? Is there a lot of rumination and worrying that's causing mood to spiral down? So again, I take a multi-pronged approach to what is, what is going on. And again, I say we, I'm a scientist. I don't diagnose people. I don't treat people. I'm just talking about it from the perspective of biology. Now there is, and I spoke about this in my book, um, a really wonderful um, kind of global um, movement of scientists who all use brain scans, in particular looking at MRI and fMRI, which enable MRI kind of takes a photo of the structure of your brain, and it's very, very um, can take very, very detailed images. And in fact, one of my kids had an MRI of a um, an ACL in his knee recently and, and we were able to see in an awful lot of detail the terrible damage he did playing a game of rugby and he had to have surgery. That's a story for another time. It's very, it provides um, a great amount of spatial detail. If MRI, or functional MRI, is kind of like a movie of um, the activity of the brain um, taking place over time. So again, it's quite precise in terms of temporal resolution and spatial resolution. And this particular um, cohort um, of, of um, studies that have been done are really trying to pull together. There's people all over the world, scientists, doctors, hospitals all over the world that have been doing MRIs on people's brains. So instead of kind of having a study done in you know, New York and one done in Sydney and one done in London and some done in um, Tokyo, why not pull together all of that data? Because there's power in numbers. And we've, we're seeing there's power in numbers when scientists all over the world focus on solving problems we're seeing that with vaccine development at the moment in 2020 people are kind of seeing science live streamed for the first time ever in 2020 which i think is really interesting and exciting and a great opportunity for education but anyway so there's power and numbers so if they pull together all these hundreds of thousands of brain scans that have been done all over the world this we're able to see interesting so that there's various um um kind of um Co cohorts looking at different aspects of brain function. The group that's looking at depression is actually run out of um, Melbourne here in Australia. And what they've been able to see is in people with very, very severe treatment resistant or long, long-term depression, we see some very minute changes in the brains of these large populations of people. And some of the changes appear to be in regions of the brain sort of deep down below the surface of the cortex and um, the amygdala and the hippocampus. And the hippocampus in particular is involved with processing memories, processing emotions, and also with sort of spatial navigation, finding a way around the world. And um, some of these brain structures in people with depression are kind of slightly smaller overall on average than people who are healthy and aren't suffering from depression. I guess what we can't tell, and we could never tell from a brain scan, is does depression cause the slight, and no one likes to use the word shrinkage because it makes it sound like, the brain's shriveling up. Is the depression causing that or not? We don't know. Is the are people with a slightly smaller hippocampus more prone to develop depression? 
for some, you know, network reasons that we don't yet understand. So that's kind of where that brain imaging space is. And I think it's really, um, it's really useful because there's power in numbers and it's really about collaborating. Scientists not working in silos, but pulling together all of that, all of that data. Um, and there's, there's an awful lot of information that can be um, crunched through. So that's what we sort of see happening in, in, the, in the brains of people. Plenty of studies have also been done using fMRI, so looking at brains in action. And they appear to support this idea that we have, that we have parts of our prefrontal cortex, a kind of growing up part and behind your forehead that develops through the teenage years. That's involved with things like emotional regulation, being able to um, manage your feelings so you're not, throwing a tantrum like a three-year-old if things don't go your way you can be a bit more reflective you know emotionally regulated and in control of what's going on and then we have the subcortical regions of the brain which are involved with processing emotions and feelings and how do I feel based on what's going on in the world around me and people with depression may be less likely to be able to emotionally regulate so the prefrontal cortex may be less likely to um, modulate that kind of overreactive emotion, the overactive emotional networks in the brain. But again, sometimes it's hard to say, well, what's cause and what's effect? What caused these circuits to be functioning less well? Um, but what we do know is that for the vast majority of people using kind of a multi-pronged approach, we can pull a lot of these people up out of depression and kind of send them on their way. So there is um, always hope. Well, that's a powerful thought that we can look at the brain and see all of this. And I chose to move to Arizona where there's sunshine and year round exercise mm -hmm. because I thought, is this the path that's going to hit me someday and, and knock on wood? It has not yet, but just being mm -hmm. aware of your family history is so important. Mm -hmm. Not, not everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, not everybody. Absolutely. And there are, and there are, as we say, um, genetic, you know, genetic components in, in there. Um, and depression, um, especially sort of severe treatment-resistant depression, which is probably more likely to have biological, um, biological um, origins, um, that can run in families. But again, it's kind of hard to separate that out from the, you know, environment that you're brought up with and, you know, how your parents raised you and the stories you were told and how emotion regulation was modelled. But we do know that one of, and certainly here in Australia, when we talk about, you know, if you were to turn up to your GP or a counsellor and say, you know, look, I'm kind of you know, I'm struggling with depression a bit. What, you know, what do you think we, you know, we could kind of be doing? First line treatments for a lifestyle, primarily exercise um, and all of the, you know, the government funded, you know, mental health um, initiatives promote getting outdoors and nature and exercising. And we know that for many people that that is, you know, one of the paths out of these, out of these mood disorders. Mm. Of course, as I say, there's shades of blue in there. So the people with the deep, dark, um, treatment-resistant depression, you know, may not even have the, the um, energy or motivation to get up. We can't just say, go for a walk in the woods and you'll, and you'll cure your depression. But for many people, it is a really important part of, um, of that treatment process. So I think it's, um, you know, um, wise, wise to kind of reflect, reflect on that. Um, as well. So, I mean, I guess for you, getting getting some sunshine and living somewhere where you can get outside um, is, is, is a pretty pretty good move. 
Absolutely. I just knew I felt right here. And, and that's kind of like what you've done with Australia and the beaches. You just know where you feel right and you end up in the place that you feel your best. And I, I just knew where I was before. It just wasn't the right environment. I'm like, something's missing. And then bam, when I found the right environment, yeah. that's when I feel like I yeah. work the best. Yeah. And who knows yeah. if, if it's biological or just yeah. instinct. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it is, um, we love living here. Um, and we're incredibly fortunate to have had the means and the life choices in front of us that, that enabled us to choose where we want to live. But I tell you what, uh, my husband is Irish. He grew up in Dublin and my family's all in New Zealand. And um, we're not even allowed to fly out of it. We're not allowed to leave Australia at the moment because of, um, of COVID. And um, having that choice removed, even though for the reasons behind it, are, I support the reasons, um, it's really tough. <laughs> um, so we can we live in the most beautiful place in the world. And I'm looking out my office window now, out over the ocean, um, across the bushland, out over the ocean, and I've, you know it's beautiful. But I can't hold my family. You know, my husband can't go and see his mum and dad. So, you know, you can live somewhere wonderful, but then you know yeah. the world happens around you still, and then you can you know have some of the other things that are so important for propping up brain health. Um, and, and mood and that's you know social connection I just wanted to say um I had to look it up just while we were chatting because I couldn't remember the name of this global consortium which really pulls together all this data it's called Enigma okay. um and it's um there's there's various kind of Enigma pods around the world which are you know this pod's working on depression this pod's working on aging this pod's working on anxiety so if anyone wants to go away and take a look at um that it's that's that's the name of it Thank you. I'll definitely put that in. I like to put websites that, and images in, in the Zoom interview when I do the editing. And just to kind of bring this round to the, to the full closure here, we, my husband and I went and we got our brain scanned and it was really just to look and see how we could further optimize this. You know, how can we make the next 50 years of our life better? Um, mm -hmm. What do you think are some practices for keeping your brain healthy? Like, what are you doing as a brain expert? Mm -hmm. uh, aside from, you know, we've talked about sleep. We know exercise is so important and eating mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. What else are mm -hmm. you doing with what you know about the brain to be healthy? Yeah, well, I always, I always kind of say, look, there's nothing new under the sun. And I've got a very wise mom <laughs> who, and, I, and, and the things that she's told me. And a lot of the things that we've heard and we know about, are kind of what what we should be doing and you've said you're getting getting enough sleep and that just sets you up to be able to do everything else well it sets you up to make the right choices about the food to eat yeah. it sets you up um to make to, to have the energy and motivation to be able to go outside and just be part of nature to move your body through the world um, and it sets you up to want to connect socially with other people i think if we, besides sort of sleep and moving our bodies through the world, if there was one prescription I would give people, it would be a social prescription. And 2020's kind of thrown that into stark reality for all of us. You know, we've we've been all been forced to not interact and spend as much time with all of the people that we want to be with and, and love and care about. We, we can't. The reasons for that are very good reasons and I fundamentally support them, but the consequences, all of us can feel how hard that is. Um, and our, our, you know, humans are social. That's kind of what we what we evolved to do was to interact with each other as well. So, um, being part of a group of people, whether that be a teeny little group or a, an expansive group, who you can call on, who you know, um, 
you know, they're there for you. The kind of you feel like you're working together, but for some like kind of collective purpose. I think that that's so important. You're working together and looking forward to something together. Um, fundamentally important for every aspect of health, and we can feel, we can all feel that this year. What happens when that's kind of by necessity being removed, and hopefully, hopefully, you know, we we are all moving towards solutions for this. Um, so that kind of social connection and then there's a lot of little practices that I embed in my day um, that I've, I've, I do because I know that know that they're important um, I, I fast most mornings um, because you know it's a, it's a really it's a way of kind of keeping me kind of lean <laughs> for want of better and it's not because I just want to look nice and the beaches in the summer I'm a middle-aged lady with children I don't really care too much about how I look but I know how important it is for my my health for my biological health so you know I'm, I'm very careful about making wise choices about what I eat but sometimes you know I'll smash back the pizza and a bottle of red wine have a good old laugh with friends so you know I try and incorporate you know a little bit of lightness in there as well um, walk my dog a lot outside so I'm, I try and be outside in nature as much as possible and I do a lot of ocean swimming around here spend a lot of time you know looking at what's going on under the ocean as I sort of swim along the beaches here um, and I suppose the other little things I do is I, I said, life is so serious. And mm. right now it's really tough. And a lot of us aren't being able to do what we need and want to do. So it's about, for me, just finding that the little things that kind of keep life ticking over. Um, I am a huge fan, and I know it's kind of a bit of a cheesy thing to be doing in 2020, but it has made a massive difference to my response to this year is I always have a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle on the go um, it just provides me kind of this grounded center in the house where I can sit down and take a moment and it gives me a lot of little kind of rewards little feedback each little piece that you put in the puzzle you've got a thousand opportunities to kind of ooh, pat yourself on the back yeah. give yourself a high five get a little bit of that dopamine reward in there and remind yourself that there's plenty of opportunities to feel good about life there's things to look forward to, even in the tiniest little way. And I use jigsaw puzzles for that express purpose to give myself something to look forward to and the opportunity for a reward. I'm reminding my brain and my nervous system that that capacity still exists just on a much smaller scale. Um, and I sit down and I listen to a couple of science podcasts every morning with my morning coffee while the sun's coming up with my orchids and my dog and, oh. and do my little puzzle. And that's just sets me up emotionally for the day ahead. That's my kind of um, little way to, ha you know, how I've, how I've kind of got through this year. And then a lot of perspective taking and a lot of um, Zoom calls and WhatsApp chats with my mum in New Zealand, who I may not be able to see for a year or two. Um, just, you know, keeping focused on that. Well, it sounds beautiful and lovely. I love your morning routine. Sarah, I want to thank you so much for your time today. If anyone wants to learn more about you, they can go to Dr. Sarah Mackay, M-C-K-A-Y.com slash toolkit. Have I said that right? You have, yep. You, you in, 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 the, in the US, you might pronounce my name McKay, if that gives people a better clue on how to spell it. But yeah, drsarahmckay.com forward slash toolkit, and that will take them through to a PDF download, which is essentially a brain health toolkit, which, you know, I talk a little bit about the theory of why sleep is important, 
but here's some useful tools and resources to go away and explore how to sleep better. And that's a huge part of what I do is I, I love the neuroscience theory. Um, you know, what's the latest research saying, but, but is that useful? How can I, you know, help other people implement that new finding in their lives just to make their lives a little bit lighter. Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to putting this up and letting more people know about your work. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation to chat. enjoying the neuroscience meets social and emotional learning podcast please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode while you're there please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us for more information on our programs books and tools for schools and the workplace visit us at www.achieveit360.com 